You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, August 22nd, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Let me tell you uh, a little story here as I begin. My wife recently found a movie, and uh, the, the movie, the name of the movie is Remember the Goal. I don't know if you've heard of it. I'll, I'll admit, it is, it is a kind of cheesy Christian film, all right? But having said that, I will also admit that I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. Uh, it's a movie about a young lady named Courtney who comes to an all-girls Christian school, and she, she came there to be the new cross-country coach. And from the very first practice, it is extremely evident that her coaching philosophy is very different from the guy that was coaching before her. And the star runner on the team is not a fan. That young lady refused to listen to anything this new coach had to say. So she would just do her own thing at practice and the coach would try with her and try with her and, and the young lady just would not submit to the coach and what the coach wanted to be done. And so the coach, to make a long story short, kicked her off the team which I loved. As a coach myself, I absolutely love a coach that for a reason of principle is willing to part with their most talented player. She kicked her off the team, and then that young lady, the star runner who was just kicked off the team, led a mutiny against the coach. She succeeded in rounding up a lot of her teammates and getting them to quit. I don't know where they came up with the idea of someone getting kicked out of a place and then taking others, and, you know, but you understand. So that took place, and only five girls remained on this team. The coach looked at those five girls, which, by the way, was all they needed, exactly the amount they needed to score in any meet. She looked at those five and said, look, ladies, we have one goal this year. And that is to get to the state championship meet and to win it. Remember the goal. And all throughout the movie, she would tell them, anytime distraction or disappointment came up, anytime they began to doubt what she was doing, she would say, ladies, remember the goal. What's our goal? Now, in movies like this, typically, the team that you're rooting for wins the championship and all of that. And and I'm not going to tell you if that's what happens with this one. You can find out for yourself. Um, What I will tell you is that we often face the very same challenge as Christians and as churches. The challenge of remembering our goal. What is our goal as churches? What is the main task that Jesus has given to his churches until he returns? Well, that's exactly what we're looking at today. In what Christians have long called the Great Commission here in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells us very plainly what our main task is until he returns. Look with me again at Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Redemption Hill, that is the goal. Make disciples 
of all nations. And what I want to do this morning is to go inside of this thing we call the Great Commission and show you that at a minimum what Jesus is saying is that we are called to do a few things. Number one, to increase the number of his disciples in the earth. Likewise, number two, to increase the maturity of his disciples in the earth. And, and finally, to decrease the number of unreached people groups in the world. And I'll explain what that is as we get there. As we go, we'll, we'll find those through our text in a slightly different order, but you'll be able to follow along. Let's start over here now again in Matthew chapter 28 with the Great Commission. In verse 18, before Jesus actually gives us the command, before he gives us the command to go therefore and make disciples, notice he says therefore, which means what he says before verse 19 is very important. And in verse 18, he prefaces his command by saying this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, in light of that, which means this, If all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, and if it is in that authority that he sends us out to proclaim him amongst the world, there is no authority left in anyone else to rightly oppose what Jesus commands. Anyone who attempts to prevent you from speaking to others about Jesus in order that they might hear, believe, and be saved is acting without legitimate authority. Now, they may have power to punish you, but that power is being exercised without authority. It is an illegitimate use of power. It is rightly considered an abuse or an abuse of power. All authority in earth and in heaven belongs to Jesus. If this person attempting to silence you from speaking about Jesus is somewhere on planet earth, they are acting out of bounds. Now again, the powers of a particular institution, like a school, might be so arranged that they have the power to punish you. You can lose your job. You can get kicked off of Facebook or YouTube. It's happened before. In the most extreme cases where violent persecution is taking place, Christians can lose their very lives for faithfulness to Jesus. But just because someone has the power to hurt us, it does not mean they have the authority to silence us. And Jesus tells us plainly in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, and in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear the one who can kill the body and then after that can do nothing else. We fear God alone. And that's our prayer right now, even for our brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan, that we fear God alone. And that if we are called to suffer to the end, called to suffer, even martyrdom for the sake of Christ, then rejoice and be glad in that day, for so they treated the prophets. And as Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As our brother Jake just prayed, that what Satan intended for evil, God will bring about for good. And so we strengthen our brothers and sisters with our prayers at times like this. 
But remember, anyone, just because they have the power to hurt us, they do not have the authority to silence us. We can speak about Jesus anywhere in his world. And when we do, it is for the very purpose he states here in verse 19. Jesus says there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Let me talk about the make disciples part and I will come to the all nations in a minute. We are called to increase the number of disciples of Jesus in the world. Those of us who are already disciples of Jesus Christ, true followers of Jesus Christ, are called to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. Very simple. And to do that through our message and ministry. We look to make more disciples of Jesus Christ through what we communicate about him and what he has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection, how he has poured out his spirit. And we do that in the context of every relationship that he has given to us. And Jesus is speaking here to all of his people. Evangelism or this business of proclaiming Jesus Christ to people with the hope that they will hear, believe, and be saved is the purview, is the duty, is the privilege of every believer. And, and, and as I say that, some of you are very nervous because I'm, I'm saying that this thing is not simply for the most outgoing personalities or the most extroverted people amongst us. And so some of you are, are very nervous right now because you're thinking, I, I'm just not good at this. I, can, I, I, I get so nervous. I don't have any answers. You are right now feeling an anxiety that is second only to what you feel during the passing of the peace. And, and we understand that, and so does the Lord. Let me encourage you. Verse 20, at the end of this passage, gives us a very important promise, which says you are not alone. When Jesus calls upon you and calls upon us to proclaim him to others for this purpose of giving them that opportunity to believe in him, he promises that he is with us to the very end of the age. And if I can further encourage you, it, it might not do the trick. It, maybe it will make you more anxious, but I'm going to try. If you are the sort of person that feels inadequate for this task, you are probably precisely the sort of person that God is most eager to use. Because our God loves to use very ordinary people to do extraordinary things so that when he accomplishes something through them, it will be crystal clear to everybody it had nothing to do with their brilliance and everything to do with his kindness and mercy. So get ready. If you are the most anxious, the Lord will most likely be very eager to use you and be encouraged because that is part of your guarantee that is part of hopefully what comforts you is knowing that as he is eager to use you and as he is with you, he's going to help you in that moment. He's going to help all of us in moments like that. I get nervous about this stuff. When the moment comes, I get nervous about this, especially if there's a real close relationship that is at risk. But we are here, friends, to risk it all for Christ. I'd rather somebody not talk to me for 10 years than wind up separated from God for eternity. 
I'm willing to be put on the line in that sense. Lord, help every single one of us, regardless of personality, to embrace the call to proclaim you to those who have yet to hear, believe, and be saved. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And inasmuch as Jesus wants us to increase the number of his disciples throughout the world, he gives particular attention to what he says now in verse 19, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, let me tell you what that does not mean. When we hear the word nations, we tend to think typically of countries as men draw those geopolitical boundaries. We tend to think of, let's say, somewhere like Brazil or Nigeria, nations. We think of that. Now, certainly it is not wrong for Christians to pick a particular nation like that to go, to send, proclaim the gospel, perfectly fine, obedient to the Great Commission, no problem there. When the Bible uses this word nations here, when Jesus said this, that word nations, if we look at the original text of the scripture, as it was written in Greek, that word nations is actually the word ethne, the word from which we get the word ethnicity. It actually refers to a smaller group of people, an ethno-linguistic group of people, or a people that shares at a minimum, a language and other aspects of cultural identity which would distinguish them from others even within the same geopolitical country. So so this is the sort of word, what Jesus has in mind here when he says nation is he has in mind something that would distinguish the the Kanande in Brazil from the, the Karubo and the Igbo from the Yoruba in Nigeria. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying go and make disciples of these people groups, these nations. Now, there are lots of different organizations that track all of this for us and map it and tell us how many people groups there are in the world and how many of them have yet to be reached with the gospel. Now, I'm going to take the higher estimates. You can look up joshuaproject.net. You can look up peoplegroups.org. And you can look up finishingthetask.com. And I hope I got my orgs, nets, and comms straight. But what, what all of these groups will tell us is that there are, again, by highest estimates, still at least over 7,000 unreached people groups in the world. And if we get to those that are considered unengaged, not just unreached, but unengaged, and that means something slightly different, we're talking now in the unengaged place of groups that, as far as we can tell, have currently no scripture in their language, no church in and among them, and not even a Christian who is seeking to spread the gospel among them. As far as we can tell, no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ with very, a very dim future ahead of them. No witness. Darkness without light. 3,000 plus of these. And that sounds like a huge and daunting number. This represents billions of people 83% of these people groups are in what we call the 1040 window. 
encompassing much of Central Asia, East Asia, North Africa. 83% of these folks. And yet, if I can put that 3,000 plus number in perspective for you, there are over 300,000 churches in this country alone. Alone. If one in every 100 churches in this country alone would say, Lord, we'll take that one. Every last one of these groups would be accounted for. Friends, remember the goal. We are nearer now to finishing this task than we ever have been before. This is what you're not hearing on the news. But progress is being made toward this goal. And by God's grace, I I will tell you, from the very first day this church opened its doors in 2008, this was one of the things that God put on our hearts. We have identified one of those 3,000 plus groups. And we have said, Lord, if you're willing to have us, we'll take that one. We have given, we have prayed, we have sent one of our own members. We're prepared to send more. And thanks in part to your partnership in the gospel, we believe that ultimately one day we will see the first convert to Christ among this people group. The same way that Romans 16.5 says that Epinetus was the first convert to Christ in Asia. And every single one of these groups, we're told in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, will be represented before the throne of God in eternity. Before his throne, where we are told that we will have people from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages. Lord, help us to continue to give ourselves to this goal. Help us to so pray and so give of ourselves that for the next hundred years, You will find us praying, giving, going, sending to reach one of those peoples. And we pray for our our sister churches that that they would do the same. And I pray for little, little kids in this church like Ezra and Elia that they would learn from their parents that this is what you're calling us to. And that they will take this up and they will say now it's our turn to run with this baton. We're going to do this for a hundred more years if that's what's needed. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are called to increase the number of Jesus' disciples in the earth, to decrease the number of the unreached people groups in the earth, and to increase the maturity of Jesus' people as he brings them to himself. Look with me again at, at our Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Jesus says here that we should go and make disciples of all nations, and then he tells us exactly how we should do that. And he mentions two things, two complementary aspects of the disciple-making process. And he says, go therefore, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The first part of that 
refers to the initial and the one-time aspect of the disciple-making process. That as people are hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Christ, as they turn from sin and trust in Him, we receive them on Christ's behalf and baptize them as an initiating work that, that says you have been brought into the body of Christ. And then we begin to teach such people how to observe all that Jesus has commanded. How to live God's way in God's world. How to bring, we, we, we teach in order to bring them to maturity. And the Apostle Paul actually says this um, even more clearly in Colossians chapter 1. If you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, very end of that chapter. Just keep going to your right a little bit, and you'll, you'll come to page 983 in that pew Bible. And I think, I think many of us understand that when we proclaim the gospel to those who are still separated from God, when we give them the opportunity to hear, believe, and be saved, when we baptize them upon repentance and faith, I think we understand when we do that, not just here, but to the ends of the earth, we understand that we are participating in and demonstrating faithfulness to the Great Commission, to Christ in our obedience to his Great Commission. I think what gets lost at times is the fact that when we gather, let's say, the church like this, and we begin to teach the church how to observe all that Jesus has commanded, that is also a demonstration of obedience and faithfulness to the Great Commission. That's how Jesus frames it for us. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, the initial aspect, and, everybody, teaching the teaching of Jesus' people unto maturity and greater faithfulness is itself an act of obedience to the Great Commission. The challenge is, the challenge is, as a church becomes more and more established, it is easier and easier to exclusively emphasize that latter part and neglect the former. When a church is newer, the challenge is flipped. It is easier and easier to focus on that initial aspect and neglect the former. So we, we prayerfully seek God's help and wisdom that we would have, not just the, the right balance is probably not the word, but that we would have uh, adequate faithfulness in both of those directions, okay? Now the Apostle Paul, again in Colossians chapter 1, is even more explicit about the way in which we are called to promote the maturity of God's people. And he says here in, in chapter 1, verse 28, right after speaking about Christ in you, the hope of glory, he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul says, we preach Jesus, not just to convert the unbeliever and bring them to a place where they are now in Christ. No. Him we proclaim, we proclaim Christ even to the believer. 
for the purpose of bringing that believer to maturity. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's why if you've been a part of the church for any, any time, you understand that we don't simply think of the gospel as a tool that is only to be applied to the unbeliever for the purpose of conversion. No, we believe that the gospel is also the power of God, not only unto salvation for the unbeliever, but for the encouragement and the establishment of the believer unto maturity. Him we proclaim in order that we might ultimately present everyone mature in Christ. Do you see that? And Paul says there, I am doing the former to bring about the latter. I am proclaiming Christ. I am warning every man. I am teaching every man in order that I might present them mature in Christ. He says, for this I toil. Paul, why are you working so hard as an apostle? Why are you traveling all the way around the world? Why are you enduring persecution? Why are you going through even shipwreck and stoning? Why would you put yourself through this? Remember the goal. Remember the goal. Paul says, it is for this I toil. One day, I, along with those that Jesus has called to serve with the grace and the apostleship he has given to us, we are going to present God's people mature in Christ. We are going to say, Jesus, here they are, more mature in Christ than they were when we first encountered them. Remember the goal, multiplying the number of Jesus' disciples and increasing their maturity, ultimately unto that day where the presentation is made. We seek ultimately a presentation relying upon a proclamation of Christ to get there. The ministry of the word is what God has given to us to not only see the unbeliever converted, but to see the believer brought to maturity. And that's why when the church is gathered here like this on a Sunday, we focus primarily on equipping the saints for the work of ministry to which God has called them. And that is why we also make sure the gospel is proclaimed because that gospel, at the very same time that the church is being equipped, will reach into the heart of the unbeliever and give the opportunity for regeneration and salvation. Right, so there is a method to our madness. There is a method to our madness. Our philosophy may be different from that of your former coach. But don't quit. Remember the goal. Remember the goal. And now let, let me tell you one challenge. As I, not quite wrapping up, but we're getting there. Let me tell you what I think will be one of the most challenging things facing us as we seek faithfulness to Jesus in fulfilling the Great Commission. And this is what I, I call the, the danger or the challenge of a competing ambition. The danger or the challenge of a competing ambition. Do me a favor and turn now in your Bibles a little bit back to the left and go to the book of Acts. So this would be right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 
Acts and the letter to the Romans. That song plays in my head. By the way, I know it might be cheesy to some of you, but we, we need to teach kids that song so that as they're going through the Bible, they can find things pretty quickly and easily. But anyway, go to the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, in the very first chapter, Acts chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 6 through 8. Let me set the scene for you here in terms of what is going on. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has gone to the cross. He has defeated sin. He has defeated Satan. He has conquered death itself. Death, I'm sure if death could, could speak Death would have realized that one day it wasn't business as usual, and he would have said, oh, snap, this is Jesus. What have I gotten myself into this time? And it was too late. In his bout with Jesus, it was the death of death. Go sometime and read John Owen's The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Jesus had died, he had been raised, the risen Christ was standing before his disciples for 40 days and nights. He had spent time with them in his resurrected glorious state, preaching to them and teaching them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. Every promise of God that had been spoken through the prophets and everything they had dreamed about as, as, as little people of God from the time they were this high on their parents' knee all the way up to now, everything that God had promised was coming true before their very eyes. They were living through the most exciting time in all of human history, and they were at the center of all of it. They had been privileged to be chosen as Jesus' eyewitnesses and first messengers to the rest of the world. And I want you to hear what they asked Jesus in that moment. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Do, do, you, do you hear what's happening here? Do you hear the potential competing ambition in the heart? Lord, is now the time when you restore the kingdom to Israel? is now when you make Israel great again. Is now when this movement becomes primarily about us establishing this particular earthly kingdom. Look. I want to encourage you, and I want you, I, I know I stepped on some toes, so some of you are wondering, what in the world is he going to say next? Listen. I want you to first of all realize that the group of people asking Jesus this question and perhaps being tempted in the direction of this competing ambition is the very same group he sent out right after that to be his messengers. Didn't disqualify them. He didn't hear that and say, well, that, that's it. I've got to get rid of these folks. No, these were the very same people he sent out in the very next moment. But I'm, I'm going to tell you something. Um, 
It, it is more than possible. In fact, I think it's very easy for us to develop this kind of competing ambition in our heart. See, see there, there's a version of nationalism uh, that is, is not new to Jesus. He's seen this before. An excessive love of country that begins to compete with the ambition to obey Jesus and the Great Commission. It's possible for our love of country to get to the place where we have very little room left in our hearts for this main task. And I'm, I'm going to tell you straight out, I absolutely love this country. And I'm not ashamed to say that. In fact, my kids would make fun of me because I, I, all throughout the Olympics, I kept saying, we won the Olympics. There should be a trophy for the nation that wins the Olympics. There should be a, a golden version of the Olympic torch that is handed to the United States. And maybe the silver one could have some silver, you know, a copy of the five rings. I've got the idea. I'll, I'll float it by the Olympic Committee. But listen, and my, my love for this country goes way beyond that. I, I, I believe, I know there's no perfect country, including this one, but that doesn't make me love it any less. I think there's so much about this place to love, so much to celebrate. I'm eternally grateful that my parents were able to come here as immigrants 50 years ago. Um, they, they crossed an ocean voluntarily because of the dream that this country held out as the land of opportunity. And in terms of my lived experience, it has turned out to be exactly that. I'm not ashamed to stand and to say that, even, even with all the stuff going on. But I will, I will say this, probably precisely because I love this country so much, I perhaps am very susceptible to the kind of nationalism I'm talking about. And I need God to protect me and to help me to make sure that my genuine and very permissible love of country doesn't morph into that. And I need many of you to help me. All right? And that's the direction in which I will be tempted. And I'll also say this. I think many of us will be tempted in the exact opposite direction. We see that here as well in, in the passage. In fact, when they ask Jesus this question, is this when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? Implicit in what they are asking is the ambition to overthrow Rome. Because that's what they meant in their context. This is how the kingdom would be restored to Israel. They were asking Jesus, is now when this movement of yours now, is now when the power turns against Rome and those we count as our oppressors? is now when this movement becomes about expelling or dismantling whatever regime or institution we think is oppressing us. It is possible, and I think very easy, to become so enamored with a version of cultural revolution and this whole business of overthrowing whatever we count as oppressors or shifting the balance of power from those we consider to be oppressors to those we consider to be marginalized, it is so easy to get lost in that, that you no longer have any room or place in your heart for obedience to the Great Commission. It is completely eclipsed. And yet I love how Jesus addresses both of these groups with his response in verse 7 and 8. Listen with me. He says here, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Regarding the future, 
regarding what God plans to do with any of this, far from us not entrusting that into your hands, far from us calling you to be about the business of all of that, we're not even telling you when the Father has determined to do that by his own authority. Remember the goal. The goal is not to establish one particular earthly kingdom. The goal is not primarily to overthrow whoever you count as an oppressor. The goal is to increase the number of Jesus' disciples through the spirit-filled proclamation of the gospel, to increase their maturity unto Christ's likeness and to decrease the number of unreached people groups in the world so that the vision of Revelation 7, 9, and 10 comes to fruition. Remember the goal. You're, you're not, Jesus is not here to give us power to overthrow whoever we count as an oppressor or shift the balance of power amongst various groups of sinners. He says here in verse 8, that's not how you're going to get your power, but you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You will receive power through the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. That's what I want you telling people. My death. In their place, my resurrection, my conquering of Satan, sin, death, my, my grace, my free offer of amnesty to sinners. You are to be my witnesses, and that word witnesses is a translation of a word that we use to, to get our word martyr. You are to pour yourself out, Jesus says, for an indeterminate amount of time because I haven't told you when your time has come. But you are to pour yourself out in faithfulness to me as my witness, my martyr, until I call you home or until I return. And the power of Pentecost, the power of the outpouring of the Spirit the, is, for the pur- is for the purpose of fulfilling that main task. There are many worthy pursuits which Christians can and should take up in either one of these directions I've mentioned. Whether that is preserving various liberties and God-given rights that are under assault, whether that is seeking justice for those who are voiceless and speaking up for them as advocates, those are things we should be involved in. We cannot allow obedience to any degree in any one of those directions to displace the main task. Remember the goal. The church as an institution is to be unified on this. And we are. And we are. And we will be. And we will go through all of this together. And though a thousand may fall at our left hand and our right, this church and others like it will remain together Unified on our faith in Christ and in our pursuit of the goal. Father, help us. Help us. And thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ that he never took his eyes off his goal. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you kept front and center the joy that was set before you
that you might endure the cross for our sake. We thank you that you completed the work that your Father gave you to do and that we now eternally benefit. I pray right now, Jesus, that your Spirit would call out and reach out to anyone who walked in this morning or who may be listening by computer and who does not yet know you in a saving way. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring about new life in that heart. And I pray that for those of us who have been privileged to know you through your grace, who have received you in the past, that you would bring us to greater maturity and that you would cause us to be conformed to your image. Lord, and I pray that we would celebrate the grace of God that not only binds us to you in perfect harmony, but to one another. And now, Lord, I ask that you would then send us out into this world as your witnesses. As it was called by your grace, sent with your power to tell a lost and dying world about the only hope of salvation, to do it here in Richmond, to begin even in our homes, and to proclaim that message beyond the context of our homes to every relationship you've given us to the very ends of the age, to the very ends of the earth. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Raymond Goodlett at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.